Please turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. We're not going to get real far in the text today, specifically because, as you'll notice by the title of the sermon this morning, there's a couple of messengers that we need to identify and a couple of lords that we need to identify. And we want to take our time in doing this so that we're not confused as we move forward. Because if you'll remember, Israel, when Malachi is writing his letter, Israel is not in good shape. And the problems that we find, if you've been with us during this time in Malachi, they've not once mentioned outside attacks from enemies. They're not talking about being at war with somebody from the outside as, as far as, as far as attacks would go. The enemy was within, if you will. The, the decay of faithful, real meaningful worship and the degradation of the family. We talked about marriage and the covenant of marriage last week and that that's, that's a result of sin and hard-heartedness and then results in even more problems. And it's this slide away from the Lord. And Malachi is really clear. And God through Malachi is, is saying, look, priests, people, you're doubting the promises of God. You're resisting his love and you're disagreeing with God's assessment of you as we'll see in the text again today. And we find out, as he'll say again in future weeks, that the problem that underlies all of this is the lack of the fear of God. The lack of the fear of God. And when the desires of the flesh in our lives, even still, outweigh the fear we have for God, man, the result is always sin. It always is. Malachi said marriage should have been held in honor because God adds himself to every marriage covenant. But the men and the priests of Israel had had started to forsake their wives, follow the lusts of the flesh, and it has had devastating consequences in the home. It's no different in 2022. Now, I mentioned this last Sunday. I'll mention it again because I think it's important. When we get caught in sin, and much of Malachi has been pointing out sin, hasn't it? This hasn't been like the cheerleader series where we get all pumped up and we're so glad. You know, there's a lot of self examination called for here. Malachi is pointing out great sin in the people's lives, which is a necessary part of the Christian life. But when our hearts grow cold to the words of God because there's sin in our life, we oftentimes fail to see how it's our fault, how it's our problem. We try to shift the blame or even deny that we have a problem at all. Israel was there. They knew things weren't right because they, things were not going well for them. But they didn't want to turn that, that searchlight back on their own hearts. And so they pointed the blame at anybody else, including God. And so God begins in these next few verses to take them to task, if you will. If you know what I mean by that. So look at <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 17. And then chapter 3, verse 1. We'll read these and then pray together. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? 
Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Hang on, let me start that over. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. God, may we not match the Israelites' hard-heartedness in our own vision of sin in our life. It was clear that there were problems, but they didn't want to get to the root of it. And just like Jason mentioned already with the kids, Lord, we sometimes would rather just call wrong right and be done with it than to actually have to let you in to fix the problem in our hearts. Lord, may that not be true of us when we're finished this morning. Use your word, your guiding and convicting spirit to change us. And Lord, if there are those listening who have never put their faith truly in Christ for salvation, Lord, I pray that today is that day. That they would see and understand and be moved by your spirit to put their faith in Christ and they'd be saved by your grace. Thank you that your grace has come to us in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So if you look, you can kind of see most of our English Bibles have a big break after chapter 2, verse 16. And chapter 2, verse 17 sort of starts this new section. We're only going to get through a couple of verses today, but the next few verses will continue with this idea. And it's this idea of, of God through Malachi kind of making this charge against the people. Okay, And here's the accusation from God. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Through Malachi, you've wearied the Lord with your words. Now, that's an interesting statement about God, okay? Especially considering, these these verses are listed in your notes, considering what Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Okay, so what does Malachi mean then when he says that the people have wearied the Lord with their words? Well, I think it's similar to uh, what Isaiah says in chapter 43, verse 24 of his letter in reference to the sacrifices of the people. Listen to this, Isaiah 43, 24. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So I, th- I think the answer to this question, how can these be true at the same time, is the irony of the use of the word weariness here. Flip back to Malachi 1, verse 13, and just glance at that verse. What were the people complaining of there? They were complaining that offering sacrifices in worship had become tiresome. And they were turning their noses up at proper worship the way that God instructed. They were saying this, what a weariness it is. And they snorted at it, is what it says. So in essence, the people were saying that God was wearying them with everything he was asking them to do. Now, and this is the irony, now we hear God is wearied by them. They say, God, you're wearying us with your 
tasks. And now God says, your complaints are wearying me. Your sin, your disobedience, your persistent unbelief. The one who is not wearied, who does not grow tired, is now tired of their complaints, of their sin, of their persistent unbelief. This is really quite an accusation. Now, one of the earliest manuscripts of the Old Testament, in translating this verse, instead of weariness, it uses the word provoked. I don't know that that would really be such a bad word to include here. You have provoked the Lord. You have irritated the Lord with your words. I think this meaning really helps us see what's happening here. Note, though, that what the people are saying, this is not a genuine complaint of innocent people in despair. Okay? Um, You read the book of Psalms. You'll remember some of our time in Psalms. And there were people, innocent people, David oftentimes, who are crying out to God for justice in, in real innocence. God, bring your justice down. I'm in despair. I need help. That's not the kind of cry that's happening here. The people aren't innocent, and they're not really crying for God's justice just for their way. Malachi will show they're really clamoring for something altogether different. How did they respond? This is how we see that they didn't really want that answer from God. When God says, you've wearied me, you've irritated me with your words, they don't say, okay, but. They don't even say, okay. Do you see the difference there? They're not even acknowledging that what God is saying about them is true. They're just saying, yeah, but... That's not true. How have we wearied him, they say. Again, their concern wasn't just to be right with God. It was just to be right. Does this sound like any of us? Does this sound like our culture? Their desire wasn't for truth, only to be justified in their wrong actions and attitudes. This is me sometimes, guys. I imagine it's probably you sometimes. I don't actually want to hear God's truth in my life. I just want people to tell me I'm good. Right? We have friends that we sometimes go to. And we probably know at this point what friends are going to tell us the hard truth that we need to hear. And what friends are just going to make us feel better and say, oh, you didn't do anything wrong. Who are we running to? Because when, when we get in those situations, we know which friend to text or call. Let me encourage you, pursue the friends that are going to hold you to the truth, not just what you want to hear. That's what the people of Israel are saying. How have we wearied him? Are you serious? We haven't done that. And they just want God to agree with them in their bad attitudes and wrong behavior. They just wanted to justify their actions How many of us simply just want to be right regardless of what the truth is? Here's another question. Are we, like the Israelites, wearying the Lord by our persistent disobedience, by our attempts at justifying our own sin? Malachi says the people's rebellious acts and words, they weren't just like a little thing to God. This is a full frontal attack on the character of God here. What are they saying? You can look in the next couple of phrases. There's three major points that the people are accusing God of unjustly. They're saying God considers evildoers good. 
They're saying that God even delights in them, those evildoers. And then the, the last and uh, certainly not least terrible accusation is that God is not just. Where is the God of justice, they ask. This is a full frontal attack on the character of God. Don't misunderstand this. I think we see it as a result of their expectations not being met. See, they had these expectations of promises of God. That he was going to make Israel, this chosen nation, this powerful group. They didn't understand it all, but they knew that these promises were true because God had made a covenant with their forefathers. And now they're looking around and they're not seeing it play out in their lifetime. And so their expectations of prosperity and glory amongst the nations were not being fulfilled how they expected. And they were calling into question God's justice and even his holiness here. Attack on his character. They complained that though they were God's peculiar and chosen people, they're left with these wimpy walls that were rebuilt. They're left with this rather shabby temple in comparison to what used to be. And now they're looking around and they say, those who do evil are actually more prosperous than us. God must even delight in them, they say. And they set up this flimsy accusation that because Israel has been left destitute, even though God had promised them victory and to bless them, therefore God must be unjust. That's the conclusion that they come to. And since evildoers prosper, that must actually be what God delights in. Evil. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 28, God instructs his people in the law to do what was right. This is what he says. Be careful to obey all the words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Well, Since it wasn't going well with them, and because they weren't willing to consider that the problem was inward with their own hearts they concluded that god had contradicted himself back in deuteronomy and that doing what was wrong was actually the way toward blessing for them do you see how sin makes our thinking so incredibly flawed that they would consider all of those times in the law that god says do what is right do what is good seek justice and then to come to the conclusion that actually evil is the way to God's blessing? Do you see how sin makes our thinking flawed? Do you see what the Israelites were actually accusing God of? Being unfair. Now, that's pretty rich when you consider what God said to them in chapter 1, verse 2. You can flip back there if you want to be reminded of this. He says, I have chosen You, Jacob, Israel, I could have chosen Esau. That's what that part was saying. I could have chosen someone else, but I love you and I chose you. Of all the people to claim God being unfair, Israel should have been last on the list, right? Because God says, I have chosen to love you. And now what are they saying? You don't really love us. You're being unfair towards us. And the sin that was so wrapped up in their hearts has made them come to a terribly false conclusion about who God is. Brothers and sisters, is that you? 
Are you maybe accusing God of being unfair because things aren't going the way you expected in life? Is it possible that we need to turn the searchlight of repentance inward to our own hearts before blaming God? Maybe you're just tired of pursuing righteousness when everyone around you who isn't is doing better than you, is more successful than you, has better obeyed kids than you, has a bigger bank account than you, and you start to think, like Israel, wrongly, that maybe this Christianity thing, maybe following God isn't all it's cracked up to be. I hope that you'll hold on because there's something special for us here in the text today and in the rest of chapter 3. I heard a story about some some boys who were in the Boy Scouts. And they I've never been in the Boy Scouts. I was a part of Royal Rangers. Anybody remember that? Royal, it's the Christian Boy Scouts. Um, and the Scoutmaster was out with the Scouts. Uh, they're setting, getting ready to set up camp. And he says, I forgot, I forgot something. I need to go back to the truck. And it was several miles away because they had hiked to this point. And he says to little Jimmy, he says, Jimmy, you're in charge. Okay. Jimmy's a little bit older, expected to be a little more responsible. So the Scoutmaster begins to leave to go to the truck to get what he had forgotten. And Jimmy turns to the other boys and he says, all right, guys, time for you to set up my tent. Okay, I want you three to go get the poles. I want you to do this. And he starts dishing out orders. He's not real kind about it. And the other boys around are looking at Jimmy, and they begin to smile. And he realizes something's wrong. He turns around, and guess who's standing behind him? The scoutmaster. He'd heard it all. He had forgotten his keys for the truck, and so he hadn't gotten very far. And he heard every bit of it. See, the, the little scout, Jimmy, assumed what the priests and the people of Malachi's day assumed, that they could act any way they wanted to because the one who guaranteed justice was nowhere to be seen. We can do what we want. We could even do what's evil. Maybe God will think it's okay. But the truth is, what Jimmy found out and the truth that Israel found out and the truth that we need to remember and understand is that the keeper of justice sees all of our deeds and all of our actions and hears all of our words and will ultimately set things right. The people said, where's the God of justice? God answers, you know what? I'm glad you asked. The plan's already in motion. And that brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. Read this along with me again. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now we're going to spend some time here because there's things we don't want to get lost in. Look at that word behold, it's used twice in this verse, and it's generally a word that's used to grab our attention, right? Especially if somebody were in 2022, if you heard somebody in Walmart say, behold, you would, you would look, stop what you're doing and look and see what they're saying, right? Okay, the, the writer, 
by God's grace, through the Spirit, says, behold, it grabs our attention. There's something important coming here. The first behold, in verse 1, draws our attention to a messenger, a messenger of the Lord of hosts, who will prepare the way before the Lord. Okay, the second behold, towards the end of the verse, draws our attention to a different messenger, a second one. The messenger of the covenant who, the text says, will suddenly come into his temple. Okay? So, let's just break this down, just to be really clear. Who is speaking in verse 1? Let's look at it. Well, the end of the verse tells us. Says who? The Lord of hosts. Okay, so that's who's speaking. The Lord uh, here is is probably capitalized in your Bible, Right? Um, it's used for Jehovah or Yahweh. It's a Jewish national name for God. Lord of hosts. We, we mentioned this several weeks back. Used a lot in the book of Malachi. It's used to kind of draw our attention to this idea that God is God, but he's the God of all of heaven. The armies of angels that are available. This is the God who controls them. They do his bidding. He is the God of hosts. What will the Lord of hosts do? Well, the beginning of the verse tells us. He's going to send his messenger who will prepare the way before him. Okay, so let's let's answer this question and pause here for just a moment. Who is this messenger at the beginning of verse 1? Is it Malachi? Remember, what does Malachi's name mean? My messenger, right? So is, is he talking about Malachi? Or some of your translations may say angel. That's kind of what... Malachi means, maybe it's talking about someone else. What clues do we get from the text? Well, look at the next phrase. About this messenger, it says, he will prepare the way or clear the way before me. Okay, th- that phrase is fairly specific and refers to a fairly specific situation. Um, in Old Testament times, especially, when kings would be traveling... From town to town, they would send out a delegate, a forerunner, someone who would go before them and alert the townspeople. And they would say, the king is planning to come by in such and such a time. Get ready. Prepare the way. Now, you guys know, they didn't have the road systems like we have. They're not going to call MoDOT and tell them about all the potholes that the king doesn't want to have to drive through. So the townspeople would get out of their homes, and they would go and they would fill in the ruts, fill in the potholes, they would clear the branches, they would take the rocks and get them off of the road, and they would prepare the way for the king. They would clear the path for the king. They would remove anything that would impede his progress, that the road would be straight, level, free of obstacles. So keep that in mind, okay? Malachi says a messenger of the Lord is going to do this. He's going to prepare or clear the way before him. The specific part I was telling you about comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 and 4. Listen to this. Isaiah prophesied. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the, in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Do we hear of anyone else in scripture referred to with these kinds of words? Yeah. Matthew chapter 3, 
1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, that was unique to John at, at the time, at that moment. But what? Go, keep going in Matthew 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We're getting to it here. We're getting to the bottom of this. The disciples knew what Malachi said in the end of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. talks about Elijah. He's coming. He's going to come before the great day of the Lord. And so they're saying, okay, if Isaiah is talking about John the Baptist, then what's going on with this Isaiah in Malachi? Well, Jesus explains it as well in Matthew 17, 10 through 13. The disciples, they're curious. They asked him, well, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Here's what Jesus says. This is important. He says, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him, but they did whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist, speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Matthew points to John the Baptist as the one who Isaiah is talking about, and the disciples from Jesus understood it the same way. A little more. To help round this out, you might remember John the Baptist is talked about in Luke chapter 1. His dad, Zechariah, had an angel come and appear to him. Remember, he was rendered mute, and the angel comes to him, and the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And listen to this. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of who? Of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this is what the the religious leaders in Jesus' day missed. John the Baptist didn't come, wasn't going to come again as an actual person, but someone who was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, that first messenger that's mentioned is referring to John the Baptist. Now, if you need even just a little more evidence, look at Matthew 11, verses 9 through 11. Jesus himself quotes Malachi 3, verse 1, and says it's referring to John the Baptist. Here's what he says. But then did you go out, but I'm sorry, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than, and there it is, John the Baptist. So the mess, the first messenger that Malachi is prophesying of is the very own John the Baptist. Let's continue, verse 1. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In, in our English Bibles, there are multiple uh, words, Lord. And in yours, you'll probably notice Lord in the phrase Lord of hosts is in all capitals. Whereas the next Lord, in talking about the Lord whom you seek, just has a capital L. That's the way that our English Bibles differentiate between different words for Lord in the Hebrew. It's very similar in Psalm chapter 110, where David is speaking and he says, the Lord says to my Lord. Okay, it's the same kind of idea here. To us, it's all the word Lord, but in the Hebrew, it's different. I don't, Malachi, I don't think would use either one of these terms, Lord, to, to refer to Elijah or to Malachi or to John the Baptist. So I think this is someone even greater than any of them. Malachi's focus shifts from John the Baptist the messenger, John the Baptist, to a different messenger, the one whom he came to prepare the way for, the Messiah, Jesus himself. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He calls him the Lord here. Uh, if you look that up, it's Adonai. Uh, it means sovereign. It means master. It's, it's not the same word for Lord that's in all caps, which means Yahweh, which was their national name for God. This Lord, this sovereign, is the one that they have been, he says, seeking for. Seeking for ages for. A long time. This is, in fact, the promised Messiah that they have been looking for. And here's how we know this. Ma amazingly, Malachi says that he will come to his temple. So the second messenger owns the temple, his temple. Do you see where he's, what he's saying here? The temple was always referred to as what? The house of the Lord. In fact, Jesus calls it that himself when he's a boy. Wouldn't you have expected to find me in my father's house, he tells his parents. It's always been known as the house of the Lord, but here, who is it attributed to? Now it's, it's the Messiah's house. It's the messenger's house. I think there's something subtle here that probably when Malachi wrote this and when Jesus spoke the words in quoting Malachi would have been pretty obvious to the original hearers and readers, but it maybe not be so obvious to us today. I think there's a hint that this Lord is the Lord who will come into the world, who will uh, fulfill the law and prophets, and as is prophesied, will come into his temple. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. You can turn there. I'll give you a moment. Keep your finger in Malachi 3, verse 1. There's just some subtle things here that we want to be good students of the word. We want to use scripture to interpret scripture. And so we want to do this. And certainly if Jesus said it, we ought to take it to the bank so Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1, but he changes a pronoun here. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you, he says in Matthew, but in Malachi, it's before me. So here's what I think is significant about this. The messenger, the first messenger is still referring to John the Baptist, okay? 
But Jesus seems to have deliberately changed the word here to show that John was preparing the way before him as he's speaking in his lifetime. Before him, Jesus, whereas in Malachi, Yahweh God was saying that the forerunner, John the Baptist, would prepare the way before him, Yahweh. Do you, do you see the subtle difference here? So I think why that's significant is this. Jesus was showing that if John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of the messenger who would clear and prepare the way, then Jesus was going to fulfill the prophecy of the Lord coming to his temple. See that prophecy is being fulfilled by the messengers that Malachi is referring to. If this is true, and I believe that it is, this was a scandalous thing for Jesus to say in his day and age, wasn't it? Uh, Maybe as scandalous as in John 18 when he says, I am. You guys know what that's in reference to, right? In the Old Testament, they asked who God was, and he answered, and he says, I am. Jesus says that himself. They found, you remember, they found Jesus in the garden, ready to arrest him. And he goes and he asks them, he says, who do you seek? As if he didn't know. He says, who do you seek? And they answered, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know what Jesus said back? Now, in your English Bibles, it's, it says that he answered, I am he. But I'm not so sure that the he wasn't added for clarification. We could believe that he's saying, I am. And the reason why I say that is because when he answers that way, all of the people listening had a very specific response. If you look at John chapter 18, you see in verse 6, it says, When Jesus said to them, I am, here's how they responded. They drew back and they fell to the ground. They stepped back and they fell on the ground when Jesus said, I am. Why would they do that if they didn't understand the implication of what Jesus was saying? It was almost like they lost their train of thought because Jesus says to them, who do you seek? And they have to answer, they have to go through the whole thing again. It's a big deal. And so Jesus is is saying, when he quotes Malachi chapter 3, and I think what he was saying when he says, I am, in John chapter 18, he's saying, God is here. You're looking at him. I am he. I am God I think it's the same reason why Jesus asked uh, the Pharisees when he had healed the paralyzed man. Remember, his friends lowered him down, and Jesus has a conversation with him, and he says, "You go and he says, go pick up your mat and walk. Your sins are forgiven." And he looks to the Pharisees who are, who are close by because he can he knows their thoughts, and they're thinking, "Who is this that?" can forgive sins, only God can do that. And he looks at them, and remember, he says, look, is it easier to heal a person who's been paralyzed, basically his whole life, or is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven? And and so he has this conversation, and with the authority of God, it says, Jesus healed the man visibly to prove that his act of forgiving sins as an invisible thing was true was equally effective not only can he heal the broken body but he can heal the broken soul and his miracle convinced them of that or it was designed to convince them of that and so jesus is is putting himself there he is saying 
I am the one in that prophecy. In chapter 3, verse 1, he goes on, Malachi does, back in the first verse, to refer to him as the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Now, don't forget that God, through Malachi, has just rebuked the nation of Israel, specifically the men and the priests, for breaking their covenants with their wives and ultimately with God. And now he's saying the messenger of the covenant is coming. The Messiah whom they have been seeking, who they have been looking forward to, will bring and fulfill the new covenant when he comes into the world. That's what he's saying. The messenger of the covenant. Christ would bring it about by his death on the cross at his first coming and then by establishing eternal righteousness and peace at his second coming. This is the hope and delight that will finally be fulfilled in Jesus who is the long-awaited Messiah Look at that last phrase. It says, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This agrees with Second Peter that talks about the coming of the Lord. He is coming. Behold, he is coming. God, through Malachi, spoke these words 400 plus years before Christ. He says, behold, he is coming, and then there's silence 400 years. Now, we're on the other side of the cross. That's now been thousands of years ago for us. And we see through a different lens, the lens of God's patience. We hear a different word today. I think of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, where Paul says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He says, of whom I am the utmost. I think many of us would probably argue with him in that, that no, actually, I'm, I'm the utmost sinner here. But he says, it's true. It's trustworthy statement. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So, so think about that. We're kind of on, on different ends of this. Malachi, through the Spirit of God, says, behold, he is coming. Paul, after Christ, says, He has come into the world. Do you know what that means for us? It means hope. It means God's patience is continuing to endure. Because we're not still searching for the one who's going to suddenly come into his temple, as this verse says. He's done it. He's fulfilled it all. The messenger of the covenant, the owner of the temple of God, if you will, is none other than the Son of God who has come into the world and made himself known to us personally in Jesus Christ. The second coming of Christ, as as Peter says, it will come like a thief in the night. But in a sense, it doesn't come without warning. John the Baptist preached a message of repentance, didn't he? Remember what was said When he was preaching, what was the main thrust of his message? It was very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what? That was Jesus' first message, too. The first, if you want to say, sermon he ever preached was the same same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Guys, do you know what the best sermon you're you're ever going to hear is today? It's the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
But now we're not looking forward to it in a sense. We are for the consummation of it all, for Christ's second coming. But we're looking back to his death on the cross, to his fulfillment of the promises. Exactly what God intended, he was. He was it for me and for all those who believe. If you believe, repent for the kingdom of heaven is a hand. It's the same message today. Believe the gospel. Repent. Turn. Change your mind about your sin and follow Jesus faithfully by the power of the Spirit that is given to every person who believes. In receiving salvation and eternal light, that's when we delight in Jesus. Right? He says the messenger, the person, this, this one you're looking forward to in whom you delight. Now in a sense, we've seen it. And we delight in the cross. We delight in the empty tomb. But in another sense, we still long for this delight, don't we? This delight one day when every, every mountain will be made flat. Right? Everything will be put back to where it is. Every road made straight. Everything is going to be right again. And we long for that. Our hearts cry out for that, don't they? And yet, God in his sovereign wisdom has placed you here, November the 6th, 2022, for a purpose and a reason. And part of that is to hear the message of John the Baptist, of the Old Testament prophets, of Jesus himself, that says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We don't know the day and the time. It will to us come like a thief in the night in just an instant, and yet you're not left without warning. And that's our warning, repent. Our prayer and my hope is that we would take that to heart today and that we would find hope in this age of God's patience in recognizing he's done this for me. He's come. The messenger John the Baptist has come. The messenger of the covenant Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come. Given of himself so that we could be saved. Be saved today. Pray with me if you would. Oh God that your mercy and grace would fall down upon us is an incredible thought. Because as I mentioned, we could, we could maybe fight Paul for the title of the most undeserving, of the greatest sinner of all. And yet that saying is completely true and trustworthy that Jesus Christ came into the world to save people like me, to save people like those listening who know that they've messed up, who know that their life is marked by sin. But Lord, I pray that we would know today that our lives no longer have to be marked by sin, Lord, but they can be marked by the blood of Christ. And so I would pray, Lord, as we sing a song of reflection and we go about our day, God, that we would heed the message of the messengers. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Grant us repentance and faith today by your grace and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. As we sing, if you'd like to talk more or come up and pray with me, I'll be standing up in the front. Let's stand.